0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that once again we're here. We can turn our attention to you. I ask that you would soften our hearts and open our ears that we might hear from your word and that your spirit might illuminate it for us so we can walk out of this room worshiping you more fully and more deeply than we did when we entered. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter 3. And while you're doing that, I'm going to dismiss our children for Children's Church. There's teachers in the lobby. So they can head on back. The teachers will take them downstairs to room 1. And then parents, remember, that, uh, pick those children up at the end of service by just going down the main hallway and then the stairwell to your left. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 3. And we will be continuing in our series through the book of Colossians. Before we read this passage, it'd be good to just review where we're at in Colossians. Paul has spent the first few chapters of this book outlining what a new life in Christ looks like. It seems that false teaching has worked its way into the Colossian church, and now there's some question about what the gospel really says. What does it take to be saved, and what does it take to stay saved? And so Paul has been explaining to his readers all that Christ did, even from before he came to earth, but then also what he did when he was on earth and what he's now doing after leaving earth. And Paul has been laying out before this church and his readers the wonderful truth of Christ's supremacy above all things, that Christ has power and rule above this world, above every ruler and authority. And then the question turns to what does that mean for us? What does it mean then to be a Christian who follows this Christ? And so starting Towards the middle of chapter 2, Paul then looks at what it looks like to be rooted and built up in Jesus and to have your life molded into a shape that matches his own. Last week, we saw some of the errors that we can drift off into. Pastor Adam mentioned that that we can go for sensationalism where we try to over-spiritualize things. We can go for asceticism where we try to purposefully not partake in things to feel more holy and pious. We can try to just embrace what the world has to offer. And there's a lot of different errors that the Christian can fall into, but Paul is concerned that his readers would follow Christ well. And so that's where we pick it up here this morning is as he continues to instruct them of what the Christian life looks like. So if you have your Bible open to Colossians, we'll start in chapter three, verse one. that shouts for our attention. Everywhere that you go, everywhere you turn, there's somebody or something that's asking you to pay attention. And then once they have your attention, once they have your focus, they then try to help you figure out how you ought to think or feel about something. Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I were driving to the airport on our way back to Colorado for Christmas, and I was struck by just how many billboards you pass just on the highway to get to the airport. From our apartment to the airport parking lot is about 15 minutes, and I lost count of how many billboards I passed by. They don't all say the same things. They all say different things. There's billboards to help you if you have hair loss. There's billboards to remind you that the Bears play here and you can buy tickets. There's billboards to remind you that O'Hare is the airport to fly out of even though you're driving to O'Hare and you've already made that decision. There was a billboard along Highway 53 the other day that was just in memory of Betty White. I... I am sad that Betty White passed away, but there was no other message other than just her picture and the dates of her life. And someone paid money so that a giant 60 foot wide billboard could simply just say Betty White. They wanted to grab our attention. They wanted us to think and feel a certain way about a woman who passed away. The next time you go online, pay attention to how many advertisements come across your screen. Billions of dollars are spent every year to try to figure out the most efficient way to put promotional material in front of your eyes. Companies are in an arms race to figure out what the best ways are to capture your attention and to keep it so that they can keep showing you advertisements and that they can help direct your desires. And so something flashes across your screen, advertising a product or a service. And it gives a pitch of how that product or service isn't just a nice thing, but an absolutely necessary thing for your life. And billions of dollars are spent every year trying to figure out how can we capture people's attention? How can we get their eyeballs on our message so we can direct what they think or what they feel? And it's not something just limited to product advertising. Politicians, vie for your attention, hoping that you might vote for them, hoping that their policies are the policies that persuade you to support them so that they can enact their agenda. Media outlets compete for viewership so that we might become impassioned about the topic that they've chosen for the day. And we have to be cautious here because this isn't something that's just limited to other media outlets or other politicians rather than the ones you follow. Every politician is trying to get your attention so that they can direct how you think or how you feel. Every media outlet is trying to gain your viewership so that they can broadcast their message. We live in a world that's shouting for our attention every day so that it might try to convince us how we ought to feel, how we ought to spend our money, spend our time, how we ought to act. And Paul speaks to the Colossians and he stands in a stark contrast to this culture. And he tells them this, seek the things that are above. Wherever your attention was directed before you came to Christ, wherever in the world it was looking to learn how it ought to think and how you ought to feel, wherever that was before, forget that. And seek Christ. Wherever you are looking on the world is meaningless compared to where you can look, which is above where Christ is seated. If you have believed in Christ as your Savior, if you've come to him and confessed your sin, then your life has been so transformed that your heart and your mind no longer need to dwell on the things of this world, but on the things above In a world that shouts and competes for your attention, Paul says, look up, put your attention above. To help us understand his instruction, Paul does two things. First, he looks at our past, but then he also looks at our future. And by looking to our past and looking to our future, Paul helps us understand why it is that we put our attention on the things above. At this point, if you wanted to tune out from the rest of my sermon, the main idea to take away is seek the things above. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about why we seek the things above and what happens when we seek the things above. So I'll just lay it all out there at the front. And if that's something that sounds intriguing... We're going to read Paul's words to understand why he directs our attention up. But if it seems foolish or seems naive to spend time thinking about something far off some heavenly reality and taking our attention off the pressing issues of the day, and maybe spend time wrestling with what to do with the message of Jesus Christ, Paul directs our attention upward. So first, he looks at our past. Paul opens this section by saying, if then you've been raised with Christ. You might have a translation that says, since then or or, so then. It's because what Paul's about to say isn't something that may or may not happen. He's not using if in in the sense that, well, we'll see how it goes. He just spent two chapters in large part explaining how those who are in Christ have a new life. So when he says, if then you're raised with Christ, that if... It's not a question of whether or not it will happen. Rather, it's showing the logical connection to the case that he just laid out in chapter 2. So he spent time explaining how we're raised to new life. And now he's saying as a consequence of that. So then, if this reality is true, what follows next? And so if we look back, we can see the case that Paul lays out in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul explains how Christians have been connected to Jesus. And again, he started this even all the way back in chapter 1 by laying out who Christ was, who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Christ, all things were created. All things are sustained through Christ. And then we who were once alienated and far off from God, Christ has brought near and reconciled. And Paul lays it out in detail that all who trust in Jesus as their savior have been buried with him and raised with him through faith. That we were dead spiritually in our sins, but God through his power worked in us to bring us to life. And through Christ, all our sins have been forgiven. There was an unpayable debt that stood against us, and it has been canceled because it was nailed to the cross with our guilt. And Christ, through his death, took our guilt. He paid the penalty. And then he took any power or authority that would oppose his reconciliation, and he defeated it. He disarmed any evil that would stand against him. He triumphed over evil. And through his resurrection from the dead, he showed that he had the power to save God's people. So before Christ, you were dead. Whether you've never heard this or whether you've heard it a thousand times, never forget. Before Christ, you were dead in your transgressions. You weren't just injured. You weren't mostly all right, but needing a little bit of help. You weren't a good person who just needed some guidance. Before Christ, you were dead, spiritually hopeless to do anything to bring yourself back to life or to make yourself better. You were dead in your trespasses in rebellion against holy and righteous God, and the Father The God of all creation looked at your sin and said it was deserving of punishment. And he looked at your evilness and your wickedness and said that it deserved his wrath and that payment must be made for defaming his holy name. And then the son went to the cross. He took that sin from you and he paid that payment in full until he could turn to the father and say, it is finished. So we were dead hopeless, but God sent his son that we might be made alive. And now what happens is that God looks at those who have been saved through the blood of Christ and says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So for all those who believe in Christ's saving work, we share in his death on the cross because that death was supposed to be ours, but he went in our place. And we share in his resurrection that he was physically raised back to life and his bodily resurrection is a sign that we experience an immediate spiritual resurrection when we are made alive by Christ. And it is the guarantee that we will one day experience a physical bodily resurrection as he did 2,000 years ago. So through Christ's death, our sin is put to death. And through Christ's resurrection, we are given life and the promise of eternal life and union with God. And Paul says, for any who call upon Christ as their Savior... You were brought into Christ and you share in his actions and all the good and righteous things that he did are credited to your account. The father looks out on his children and he sees a holy and righteous people that he calls sons and daughters. So you were dead, never forget. You were dead, but you've been made alive. You've been transformed into a new work. And if we look at Paul's words here in Colossians, we see that all of this has already taken place. He says, if then you have been raised, and then further in verse three, if for you have died. We're not waiting to see if we'll share in Christ's death and resurrection. We're not seeing, well, maybe I shared in his death, but we'll see, I guess, if I share in his resurrection and brought back to life. Rather, both sharing in Christ's death and his resurrection are events that have already taken place in our life. God did that work in us when we were called to a saving faith that has been accomplished and we now stand as forgiven, clean children. And so Paul is looking at a picture of our past, of things already accomplished and secured so that now we are hidden in Christ, kept secure. We've shared in his death and his resurrection and our life now belongs to him. Secured forever. That's where we've come from. People who are dead, called to life. So what now? Paul looks at our past saying, if you've been raised with Christ, if that's what has already taken place in your life, what happens next? He gives two commands. Seek and set. The implication coming out of being raised with Christ is we are to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on the things that are above. This new life that we have in Christ transforms us. It not only made us spiritually alive, but it renews us. And God's spirit is working in us to change us, as Paul would say, from one degree of glory to the next. When we started out, we bore God's image, but otherwise looked pretty far off from the example of Jesus Christ. But every day as God's spirit works in the life of a believer, we look incrementally, incrementally more and more like our savior, Jesus Christ. God is working in us to renew us and transform us. And so Paul says, if we're those who have been made alive with Christ, then now in this moment, in this present time, We seek the things that are above and we set our minds on the things that are above. In our old way of living, back when we were dead, our focus was on the things of this world. But in this new life, through Christ, our sight has to be raised. How could we possibly go from death to life and still focus on the same things we did before? How could our ways of thinking be the same as they were before when we've been so totally and radically transformed? So Paul says, seek the things that are above, set your mind on them. And when he uses this word above, it's not some sort of abstract term to refer to spiritual things. Rather, there's there's a specific place that Paul is thinking of. When he says above, Paul's thinking of a throne room. And sitting on the throne is the God of all creation, surrounded by creatures, continually shouting out his praises day and night, holy, holy, holy. And seated at the right hand of the Father is one who's like a lamb that has been slain, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the above that Paul is referencing, the heavenly places where God is reigning in Christ reigns and rules as the victorious savior over all of creation. So Paul says that's where we look, where God reigns, where Jesus stands in and intercedes on our behalf and has been given authority over every ruler and principality and power in this world. In our old life, we looked just to this world, but now in this new life, we look up to see where God is, and we set our mind on Christ and his work. We used to put our attention on on the things that this world could offer us. Our hope was firmly rooted on whatever we could see and put our hands on. We spent our energy chasing after the things of this world for security, for happiness, for comfort, for contentment. That's the way of people who are spiritually dead for those who have been raised with Christ, they now chase after that which is above and the one who is above. So Paul gives us two similar commands. They function together with one another. The first is to seek the things that are above. Chapter 3, verse 1. says, If then you've been raised with Christ, that's the past of who we are, of who we've been made, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To seek the things that are above is to set our heart in the same direction as God's heart, to realign our priorities, to realign our goals, to realign the direction of our life to be the same as God's heart. And so we seek the things that are above and our desires and our motivations become reshaped because of this new life that we have been given in Christ. So the goals that we might have had before, the hopes that we had for our life, those were the goals and hopes of someone who had no spiritual life, who is dead in their trespasses. But now... We have the goals and hopes of one who has been made alive and will live forever with God. So that changes our hearts completely. And so our first question is then, do our priorities match God's priorities? In our daily life, as we try to live out our Christian faith, do our values line up with God's values? Are we seeking to live in a way that mirrors his character? That holds close what he holds close? There are so many areas that we could look when we ask this question of, of what God's priorities are. Just a few. Do we seek justice for wrongdoing? The God of the Bible is a God of justice wrongdoing does not go unnoticed and for God it does not go unpunished and ultimately uncorrected for God to stand above all over all creation as a righteous and holy God he cannot have an injustice go unchecked because that would defame his own name It would say that where a righteous God rules, unrighteousness can go on without any consequence. But we know that for the God of the Bible, he sees all injustice. He sees all unrighteousness. And that ultimately, he will make it all right. And so in our own lives, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Because by all rights, we were deserving of God's wrath. And God didn't just ignore that. He didn't just say, we'll let this one slide. He still poured out his wrath on Christ so that every sin that you've committed was paid for on the cross. So that at no point can I do a wrong that God will leave unchecked. Because for those who are in Christ, it has been paid for by Jesus. But even still in our world, there's countless ways that smaller injustices are borne out. Where those who are marginalized or voiceless cannot be heard. Where those who suffer systems that are oppressive cry out. And where those who have wrong done against them never see any sort of recompense. So first question would be, do you have a heart that longs for justice of any wrongdoing? That where you see injustice, you have a longing and a desire to do what you can to correct it. Do you pray for God's swift return so that once for all, all evil can be put to an end? All things can be made right. Because we live in a broken and troubled world. And we know that when Christ returns, creation will finally rest at ease and at peace like it has not done since the Garden of Eden. Do you long for that justice? Second priority, do you have compassion for the weak? In In a related sense to the first one, do you have compassion for the weak? Towards the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus turned to his disciples and told them of the end times. And so I want to read from Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this for us. But in Matthew 25, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. If you've heard this account before, you probably know how it goes. After separating sheep and goats out, Jesus turns to those who he separated out as sheep and said to enter into his rest because they fed him when he was hungry. They clothed him when he was naked. When he was in prison, they came and visited with him. And all those who have been separated into the sheep were completely unaware that they ever did those things. they say, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we visit you? When did we clothe you? And Jesus turns to them and says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And for the goats that are separated off to his left, since you didn't do these things. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And those who have been separated into the goats say, we never saw you when you were hungry. Presumably, if we had seen you, we would have fed you. But Christ gives them the admonishment that whatever you failed to do for the least of these, you failed to do for me. Jesus has a heart that is compassionate towards the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. And his disciples mirror that compassion, even not fully aware of what they're doing. Because Christ's disciples have hearts that have been aligned with God's heart So that their very actions of taking care of the least of these, taking care of the weak, were a testimony of the new life that they were living in. Because they had set their hearts on things above, and they had priorities that were heavenly priorities. And so when Jesus has compassion for the weak, his disciples then in turn have the same compassion for the weak and seek to serve those who are marginalized. We have that same priority. Third priority. To put sin to death. God has a heart that all sin would cease so that his glory would move into every corner of the universe unchallenged. Because God is righteous and holy... He is deserving of all worship. And any sin anywhere is an attempt to worship something other than God. And so he has been working since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and introduced sin into the world, he's been working from that time to reconcile all things, to make all things new so that sin will one day be put away forever. God's heartbeat is to see sin put to death. Do our hearts seek the same thing in our own lives? We've been raised with Christ, but we know that there's still an old flesh at war within us that still wants to drag us back and say, sin was the preferable route. Let's try sin again. And the question is, are our hearts so aligned with God's heart that we seek to root out the sin that's in our life and put it to death. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Really? Consumed with longing for your rules? seems a bit restrictive or strange when you say it just like that. That the psalmist is sitting there meditating on the word of God and he says, I just can't stop thinking about your rules. I rejoice in your rules. I'm thinking about them when I wake up. I'm thinking about them when I go to sleep. I cannot get enough of God's rules. But the psalmist saw how God's rules, his commands and statutes that he gave to Israel were an instruction given to God's people that they might live the best life. God's rules, his ordinances are not to keep them from fun, but to keep them from evil, destructive, and useless pursuits. And so the psalmist praises God that God has shown us how to live honoring lives that glorify him. So the psalmist rejoices in God's rules. He understands that sin anywhere is an infection that will root out the joy of life. So he says, I I meditate on your laws, on your precepts, that I might not walk in sin for the person whose heart is seeking the things above, you come to rejoice when you have instruction on how you ought to live. You come to rejoice that God has given you his word, that you might meditate on it, that you might understand the wise way to live, the holy way to live, because God has done this, that his people might have Good life on earth following his commands, but then that they might understand the eternal life that is in store for all who call upon his name. So God's heart is that sin, anywhere it's found, in our own hearts or anywhere in the world, that that sin might be put to death. And as we seek the things above, do we have that same heart to put sin to death in our own lives? the fourth priority for god is that his glory might be made known in all creation the bible often describes god as a jealous god which for our perspective can sound like a negative attribute usually jealousy is something we don't aspire to because for us jealousy is often longing for something that isn't ours but for god any worship in this universe universe is by all rights, belongs to him. So he's jealous that he might receive worship because his glory and his supremacy rises above all others. And so he seeks that his glory might be known in all creation, that we might not get stuck focusing on the glory of some lesser thing. Do we have hearts that seek for God's glory to be made known? We've been given a new life, forgiven a great debt that we could never repay. God has made us alive and adopted us. You can turn to the creator of the universe and call him father and he listens to you. And one day we will be with him forever in perfection and in glory. What higher priority is there for our life but to proclaim that good news to everyone that will listen? Do we have hearts that are seeking the things above, that are seeking for God's glory to be made known in all creation? So Paul's first command of the Colossians, seek the things that are above. Align your heart and its motivations and its desires on the things that are above. Don't get stuck on things on this world. Look above. luckily for the Christian, that's not an endeavor that we have to do under our own power. God gives us his spirit that not only gives us life, but then empowers us to live with a heartbeat that matches God's own heartbeat. To have the same priorities as God. And the spirit will continually convict us when we're wrong and direct us into God's will so that our hearts might more and more be set on the things above on Christ and his work and our hearts will not be fully satisfied until we are with Christ So for us now it's easy for our hearts to lose their focus a little bit even this week as, as I was writing this sermon towards the beginning of the week told Adam that I had Colossians 3, the beginning, where it talks about setting your mind on things above, seeking things above. And it seemed an awful shame that we're living in a time where there's nothing much happening in the world to distract us. The reality is that every day we wake up, it seems that there's something else that says in this world, I'm worthy of all your attention. Put your focus on me. Pay attention to me. So it's easy for us to take our focus from things above and put them on things of this world. What happens when we do that is we get pent up with anxiety. Because we're not quite sure if things are going to work out well here on this world. Right now if you crack open a newspaper, headlines aren't looking too good. go to a family get-together or hang out with friends, pretty soon we discover we seem to live in a pretty divided place. Things seem broken. This world seems full of problems that are bigger than we're up to the task of handling. And not in an escapist way, Paul says, set your heart on the things above. It's not to ignore what's going on in this world, but it's to realize that what's happening in this world is not ultimate. Rather, as ones with new life, our focus and our attention can be set on the things that are above, because that's what will endure. And so that helps us understand the things that are happening in this world, and it helps give us perspective on everything taking place in our world right now when we understand that all of creation is overseen by a God who is reigning in power as we speak. When we set our hearts on the things above and remind ourselves that God is ruling over creation and Christ is seated at the right hand and he's seated because his work was successful in having victory over every ruler and authority on this world, it will help reset our priorities when we face the problems that this world has to offer. So we align our hearts on the things above. Paul's second command is related to the first, to set our mind on the things above. In the first command, he's interested in the very motivation of our being, our heart, our desire. But now he turns to our mind, the thought life that often Springs out of where our heart is, and he gives the same instruction to our mind as he did our heart. Set your mind on things above. Again, we live in a world that shouts for our attention, that tries to tell us what we should find important every day. The world is full of advice on how we ought to live our life, how we ought to spend our time, invest our money, act towards our friends. Paul's exhortation, let your mind and thinking be shaped by Christ. If you've been raised with him, you have new life with him. So let him fill your mind. And there's so many different ways that our minds can be filled with an earthly way of thinking that runs counter to God's heavenly way of thinking. As we go through our day, Just a few examples. We can come into our job. And an earthly way of thinking would be that our job is a place where we prove our value. Where we're able to take the skills that we have, the experience that we have, and prove that we're worth something in this world. We prove it to our bosses, we prove it to our employees, and we prove it to everyone that's watching to show that that we're somebody that means something. And so what happens is that when your job doesn't go the way you think it should, you start to question, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I don't have the value to offer that I thought I did. And it's very easy in an earthly mindset to say, if I'm going to spend a large part of my life at my job for 40-plus years, then it's got to mean something important because that's how I'm going to spend my life. And if I don't have some sort of lasting impact or legacy from all my work in toil, then I messed up somehow. seems like my life would be wasted to spend 40 years chasing after a career and not to have any lasting, meaningful impact. It's an earthly way of thinking. But as we fill our minds with what is above, we understand shortness of our own life our life is like a breath and a vapor and that what we do here has meaning and importance but it's so small compared to the eternal life that we will have after this world and so our 9 to 5 is an important part of our day-to-day life but it in no way determines the legacy of what our life meant It's just something that we have right now but in what seems like tomorrow we will be gone and in a generation we will largely be forgotten. And so we can't invest all of our worth and value in what we can accomplish here on this earth. It's an earthly way of thinking to approach our finances and say if I invest well I can secure a pretty good situation for myself. And to say if I, if I have a, a 401k that's set up just right then I can store up some security so that maybe when I hit the right age, 65, 67 I can finally retire sort of live out and enjoy the rest of my days. Jesus tells a parable of rich fool, who one day had a crop that produced plentifully. So this man set out and said, I've got this great, bountiful crop. So what I'll do is I'll build some storehouses. They're going to store all this wealth for me, and then I can just live off of what I've saved up and enjoy the rest of my days in ease and comfort. And God turns to him and says, fool, fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. We can spend our lives chasing after security at a certain number on our retirement account, and yet we don't even know if we're waking up tomorrow. So it's an earthly way of thinking to orient our entire existence and trying to make sure that we're secure enough, we have the right things in place, we've put together the right savings account. And we've banked all of our hope and comfort on that because we don't even know what our life holds when we leave this building. So Paul says, set your mind on things above. Understand the shortness of your own life. Understand the weight of eternity. Understand that God has put you here for a moment that you might do his work rather than being caught up on building your own legacy, on building your own safety net. So Paul's instructions to the Colossian church. Set your hearts on the heavenly things. Align your priorities with God. Align your desires with what Christ has revealed because you have a new life and are a new creation. And from that, align your mind with things that are above. Fill your mind with the heavenly things because it's, they they will endure and they are what matters. So what are we setting our minds on? What fills our thoughts? Is it the plans that we're putting in place? The worries that we have? How things will turn out? The concerns of friendships and relationships, does that fill every waking moment of our thought life, where at the end of the day, we realize we've only looked at the things on this earth and let them consume all of our attention? Or have we carved out time? Have we set aside a place where we can lift our gaze and fill our minds with the things above? It's so easy to fill our life with the things of this world. With the things that we read, the things that we listen to, we watch on TV or watch on our phones. We can fill every last waking moment of our day listening to some voice that's helping us figure out how we ought to think or how we ought to feel. There's no shortage of things to grab our attention. But as people who have been given new life, we ought to have thoughts and hearts that look nothing like the rest of the world. Because this world is not what's eternal. So do we fill our minds regularly with God's Word? in our Bibles to help reshape our thought life, to help direct our heart? Do we meditate on scripture, memorize it so that we can call it to mind throughout the day, so that our hearts and our minds might be continually set back on things above as a world shouts at us, yells at us, jumps up and down and tries to get our attention? Are we in prayer? Are we in the word that our attention might be continually raised back up to the things that are above You are a new creation with a new life that is now heaven-oriented. That means that for those who are in Christ, this world is no longer your home. You are a pilgrim passing through onto a better land. So set your heart and your mind on that place. Your life is hidden with Christ. May your life be used for his glory. Paul ends by looking to our future. He began by looking to our past and saying, You've been raised with Christ. That's taken place. But then he ends this section by looking to our future. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's where we're headed. For all those who are in Christ, that's where all of this is headed. No matter what happens on this world, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens with your job, Financially, with your health, with your friends, with your family. If you are in Christ, you are headed towards appearing with him in glory for all of eternity. One day, we will no longer be below while Christ is above. Rather, we will be together with Christ. One day, he'll appear to all creation and we will appear there next to him and we'll reign with him in glory. All the things that try to grab our attention on this earth are quickly passing realities soon they'll be gone and what will endure is God with his people may we set our hearts and minds on the things above would you pray with me Father I ask that you would continually lift our gaze and our attention to you that our hearts might be transformed and that might seek out the things that are above, shaped by you. That our minds might be filled with the things that are above. That we might desire to live lives honoring to you. Rejoicing in the new life that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.